Well, good evening. Two Bible readings this evening. Um, the first is in, from Daniel 4, so please come with me to Daniel 4. That can be found on page 723. The English Bible's in 1442, if you're using the Chinese Bible. So in this part of Daniel, once again, Daniel's been called to interpret one of the king's dreams. So Daniel 4, starting at verse 19. Then Daniel, also called Belshazzar, was greatly perplexed for a time, and his thoughts terrified him. So the king said, Belshazzar, do not let the dream or its meaning alarm you. Belshazzar answered, My lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries. The tree you saw, which grew large and strong, with its top touching the sky, visible to the whole earth with beautiful leaves and abundant fruit, providing food for all, giving shelter to the wild animals and having nesting places in its branches for the birds. Your majesty, you are that tree. You have become great and strong. Your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky and your dominion extends to the distant parts of the earth. Your majesty, you saw a holy one, a messenger coming down from heaven and, and saying, cut down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump bound with iron and bronze in the grass of the field while its roots remain in the ground. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live with the wild animals until seven times pass by for him. This is the interpretation, your majesty, and this is the decree the Most High has issued against my lord, the king. You will be driven away from the people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by you for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. The command to leave the, command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to, when, restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by doing kind to the oppressed. It may be then, maybe that then, your prosperity will continue. The second reading this evening is over the page, page 725 from Daniel 5. Again, here in this part of Daniel we read, uh, again, he's been called to interpret a strange event, some writing on the wall. So starting at verse 22 from Daniel 5. But you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. Instead, you have set yourself, against, set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you, and you and your nobles, your wives and your concubines, drank wine from them. You praised the, God of sil you praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honour the God that holds in his hand your life and all your ways. Therefore he set the hand that wrote the inscription. This is the inscription that was written, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Parson. Here is what these words mean. Mene, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and have found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and is given to the Medes and the Persians. Then at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple, a gold chain was placed around his neck, and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. 
That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain, and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. Thanks, mate. Hey, how are we? We haven't met. Uh, my name's James Lewis. I'm one of the senior assistant ministers here, and uh, again, counted a great privilege to be opening God's word with you, and so we'd love for you to join with me now as we pray and ask for God's help. Will you pray with me? Father God, we thank you uh, that as we've sung earlier this afternoon that you are a good and gracious king and that we actually find joy and peace as we come to you empty-handed and surrender our lives to you. And so we ask tonight that that would be another peace in that journey for us, that as we sit under your word, we would learn and we would love to have you as our king. We ask this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Well, we're back in our series in Daniel after taking a week off uh, with Rory Stein last week. Uh, those of you here, it was, a, it was a great afternoon, wasn't it, to hear from Rory, Nelson Mandela's uh, bodyguard, uh, his stories of reconciliation. Um, so many amazing stories. Uh, Pete and I were reflecting on it uh, a bit later on, and one of the things that struck us was so many of those stories about Mandela and the Australian cricket team and Steve Waugh and Prince uh, Charles and figures that we knew growing up, and Rory lived those stories. Like He, he was in those stories. He wasn't telling that something happened else. He, he was in those stories. And it was a bit, struck me as a bit like Daniel. In the book of Daniel, we, we've some many of us have grown up with the lion's den and the fiery furnace, and we've maybe done in history the fall of Babylonia and, and the rise of the Persians. And Daniel lived those stories; he was in those stories. But you know what's more interesting, more fascinating, more helpful for us is not just the big stories, but what's going on in individual lives, what's going on in the hearts of men and women like us. What's Mandela's character like? And Rory's conversion to Jesus. And as we've heard in Daniel, his faithfulness in, in the face of great difficulty and opposition. It's the individual stories, what's going on in our hearts that really matters. And that's what we get more of in Daniel chapter 4 and 5 tonight. Because Daniel 4 and 5 aren't really about the big kingdoms. That's in the background. We see little hints of the fall of Babylon and the rise of Persia. But Daniel 4 and 5 is more about what's going on in the hearts of these two men. These two great kings, Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar. And so we're going to, as we do that tonight, we're going to press down in and have a look into their hearts and what's going on in their hearts. And as we do that, we're going to notice uh, that humility gives joy, but pride leads to destruction. So let's dive in. And before we do that, I want to point out to you that there is a wonderful truth kind of running through underneath Daniel 4 and 5, and actually running through all our lives. It's this. God can change lives. God can change lives. You think about it, these two great kings, Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar, kings of this great empire, the superpower of their day, and it's no exaggeration to say that they had the power of life and death over millions upon millions of people. Uh, it's what Daniel reminds uh, Belshazzar of about uh, Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 5. He says in verse 19 of chapter 5 um, that the nations and peoples of every language dreaded and feared Nebuchadnezzar because the, those the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. Those he wanted to spare, he spared. 
Those he wanted to promote, he promoted. And those he wanted to humble, he humbled. You see that? He had power over life and death. Blessing and suffering. Flourishing and destruction. In the hands of these two great kings. But actually, as Cam's reminded us tonight from Romans 13, their lives were in God's hands. And with just a few words, God changes their lives, doesn't he? For, for Nebuchadnezzar, it comes to him in a dream. For Belshazzar, it's, his future is written up on a wall. Do you see that? God can change lives. He has the power to do that. So, so do you believe that? Do you believe that God can change lives? Like when we gather on a Sunday afternoon or in your community groups uh, during the week, do you believe that God can change lives? Do you have a, a, a joyful expectation that God can change your life? That as we open our Bibles and we listen to God speak in His Word, that He changes us. He transforms us by His Spirit. He rebukes our sin. He heals our pain. He eases our doubts. And actually, you know, this or all this, you are proof living proof that God changes lives. Like we could go around the room tonight and hear one story after grace-drenched story of how Jesus has changed your life, of the difference that Jesus has made in your life. And, and it'd be amazing to hear all those stories. God changes lives. But some of you might say, look, I'm not sure what I think of Jesus. Or you might say, look, Actually, I didn't really want to come tonight, but I'm only here because I didn't want to offend a friend or I'm keeping my spouse happy. That's why I'm here. But you are here. And it's no accident that you're here. God is gently calling you, drawing you. So whether you're a believer who's followed Jesus for years and years or whether you're a skeptic with all sorts of questions and doubts, God has a word for each of us from Daniel 4 and 5 tonight. That's one of the things that should mark us out as a church, that we have a joyful expectation that God changes lives. That's the wonderful truth that runs through Daniel 4 and 5. It runs through our lives. So now let's, with that kind of lying there, let's now press down into the hearts of these two kings. First of all, Nebuchadnezzar. We see humility gives joy. Um, look at the beginning of chapter 4, beginning of Nebuchadnezzar's little section. He says there, verse 1, King Nebuchadnezzar, to the nations and peoples of every language who live in all the earth. It's quite a big statement, isn't it? To the known world. And that's kind of what you do when you are king of the known world. But actually, it's Nebuchadnezzar's personal testimony, isn't it? His personal story. Like if we did what we do here at Norwest, we, we got a couple of stools and we sat down and had a chat with Nebuchadnezzar, right? That was what he would say. Uh, last week it was meet Rory Stein and Mandela's bodyguard, stories of reconciliation. This week it's meet King Nebuchadnezzar, King of Babylon, stories of humility. So, so imagine that. We get Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, I'm sitting here on a stool. He's sitting on a stool, handheld mics. We say, Nebuchadnezzar, we'd love to hear a bit of your story. And he would say, verse 4, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. Sounds a bit like the hills, doesn't it? Content, prosperous. Not really troubled and searching, but content and prosperous. 
And then God gives him a dream that cuts through that complacency. And only Daniel can interpret the dream. And the dream, Nebuchadnezzar learns that he is like a great tree, that God has raised him up as this great and mighty king. And his branches are full of fruit that care for and provide and protect the nations all around him. But then he learns that this tree, that Nebuchadnezzar will be cut down. He will be humbled and only the stump will be kept. And the purpose of this, verse 17 of chapter 4 The decision is announced by messengers. The holy ones declare the verdict so that the living, that's you and me, may know that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets over them the lowliest of people. Again, second half of verse 25. Seven times, which is a set season, will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. And then this dream, this promise is fulfilled, isn't it? Verse 28. All this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. Now pause there. And as I read the next bit, I want you to see if you notice his pride. Is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? you hear it? I, my. I, my. Now, none of us is like a Nebuchadnezzar, but the same pride can take roots in our hearts and grow and flourish. Because over the last 400 years, particularly in Western culture, we have been misled. We've been deceived. We've been told again and again in all sorts of ways that we, that that me, that you are the most important people in the world. That what we want, what matters to us is the most important thing. Which is why people go on about my rights and my freedom and my choices and my decisions. Have you ever wondered how politicians can be so obsessed with power struggles? You know, they're completely removed from the problems of Australia. They're just fighting amongst themselves about who will be Prime Minister, both Liberal and Labor. They do it all the time. How can that be? How can that be that the banks can be so greedy and selfish and need a royal commission to be exposed? It's pride. How can it be that individual people can be so cruel to each other with gossip and lies and marriages fall apart and children are hurt and families are disaster areas? How can that be? Pride. A whole bunch of people saying, what I want, what's important to me is the most important thing. It's pride. It's a kind of, well, it's a lie, really, isn't it? I mean, think about it. When you were in your mother's womb, you weren't sitting there planning your life, were you? I'm going to be great at this and good at that, and here's the things I'm going to achieve. Of course not. All the abilities and talents that you have now were a gift. A gift. And this great nation that we live in, one of the the most beautiful, successful, lucky nations in the world, all the things that we enjoy, we didn't earn that. It's like, you didn't earn that. I didn't earn that. It's, it's a gift. Now, God loves to give us that. So it's not about feeling bad about it. It's not like you come to church to feel bad about the things that are going well in your life. Now, God loves to give us good things that we should enjoy. But here's the thing. Pride takes that, receives good things from God, and then does a Nebuchadnezzar. Look what I have done. Look what I have achieved. 
It's my university degree. It's my career. My business. My family. Even my church. It's pride, isn't it? It's a kind of cosmic fraud or plagiarism. You know, if you imagine the story of your life and the section where the author is written, we cross out God and we write me. Cosmic plagiarism. And so God in his kindness and his mercy will humble us. What? His kindness? We'll come back to that. Well, Nebuchadnezzar is humbled, as we read before. He is driven out. There's an artist's rendition of it. Uh, He's driven out into the fields and he lives like an animal until verse 34 of Daniel 4. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion, like kings who come and go over and over. His kingdom endures from generation to generation, unlike empires that come and go. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? It's very different, isn't it? It's not I, my, but he. Again, verse 37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Again, it's not I, my, but it's God is the king of heaven. His ways are right and just. And he can humble those who walk in pride. Now here's the thing. And this is the crucial thing. So if you kind of drifted off or tuned out thinking about Monday and what's coming up or what you did on the weekend, this is the time to make sure you're listening. Because all our hearts will resent what we've heard tonight. In our hearts, we resent it. All of us at some level, in some way, will be thinking God is selfish and cruel to humble us, to enforce his rule over us. How can it be that it is kind and merciful for God to humble us? How can you write, James, in the outline, humility gives joy? How is that possible? We'll come back to the beginning of Nebuchadnezzar's story, the beginning of chapter 4. He says, verse 2, It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High has performed for me. Did did I read that correctly? Make sure you follow along. Make sure I don't make a mistake. It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. So, So let's be clear. What were the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God performed for him? It was that Nebuchadnezzar went from content, prosperity, to being humbled and crazy and living in the fields like a wild animal until he acknowledged that God was the Most High. God humbled Nebuchadnezzar and he says, it's my pleasure. Not, not my dry, grudging obligation that I was forced to admit, but it's my pleasure, my joy, my delight to let you know what God has done for me. Not against me, but for me. Wow. God brought Nebuchadnezzar low and he says it was great. It was a kindness from God. Wow. Nebuchadnezzar had come to realize that there was a terrible sickness in his soul that needed drastic treatment. That's how humility gives us joy. 
when you realize that there is a terrible sickness in your soul that needs drastic treatment. So that you, like King Nebuchadnezzar in verse 37, say, I want to praise and exalt and glorify the King of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just. And it's so good when he humbles those who walk in pride. That's humility giving joy. Well, that's what Nebuchadnezzar shows us. Belshazzar shows us a very different story that pride brings to destruction. And you see at the beginning of chapter 5, I'm going to read verses 1 to 6. And I want you to read along and picture this scene. It's, it's a crazy scene. Like imagine if they made a movie of this, right? King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. So they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines drank from them. As they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood and stone. Suddenly, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale and he was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking. It's quite a scene, isn't it? Well, at one level, Belshazzar's pride is very obvious, isn't it? To take the, the gold goblets from the temple in Jerusalem and use them to drink a toast to his pagan gods is pretty flagrant and defiant challenge against the God of Israel. It'd be like... Bear with me, it'd be like using your Bible for toilet paper or starting a food fight at communion, you know, flicking bread and juice around. It'd be like hitting on someone at a funeral. Horrific, right? Flagrant, defiant. That's what's going on here. And yet there's more going on because historians tell us that Belshazzar was the last king, the last ruler of the Babylonians. So it's pretty certain that when he holds this feast, there's either one of two things happening. Either the, uh, the Persians have just defeated the Babylonian army and they're marching on Babylon or they've already arrived and they're laying siege around the city. And Belshazzar is feasting. Do you see how crazy that is? Like the, the, the Persians have got the Babylonian army by the throat and they're about to put the last thrust of death in and they are feasting. There's, there's a kind of flagrant pride there a kind of desperate pride like Belshazzar is beating his chest and saying no I'm I'm still great I'm still someone he's suppressing the reality that he is no one now none of us are like Belshazzar but the same pride can lurk in our hearts as we search for meaning and significance in all the wrong places I think a great example of this is social media Social media is a wonderful tool for sharing and uh, keeping in touch and contact and so on, but it can feed our pride, our longing for significance. So what we do is we post something, you know, a, a picture of ourselves or a, a brilliant idea that we had or a joke, and we put it up there and then we wait for the likes. And then we check and we wait and we check and we wait. And how many likes? How many likes? How many likes? Do, do they think I'm clever? Can they see what a great life I'm having? You see that I'm gorgeous? 
is so destructive, isn't it? Because what it does is it makes us forget that actually we are fearfully and wonderfully made by God. And that you are lovely because God loves you. Not because of how many likes you get. Well, it might not be social media for you, but we all search for meaning in the wrong places and it is so destructive. But what makes Belshazzar's pride so tragic, it comes across in what Daniel says to him in verse 22 of chapter 5. And I'm going to read that little section. And as I read, I want you to notice how personal it is. So for the English teachers, it's how many second person singular pronouns are used. For everyone else, that's a you, your, or yourself. Okay? But you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you, and you and your nobles, your wives, your concubines drank wine from them. You praised the gods of silver and gold of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. Therefore, he sent the hand that wrote the inscription. See how personal it is? How, how many second person singular pronouns did you get? Anyone count? 15. Excellent. Well, that agrees with the morning, so we're, we're on the right track. I said 13 at 9 a.m., and then someone quietly corrected me, so... Better counters than me. Um, it's very personal, isn't it? You, Belshazzar, are responsible. You did this. You knew that God had humbled Nebuchadnezzar. You knew that God had rescued and protected his people in the fiery furnace and the lion's den. You knew what God was like, but you didn't care. You didn't listen. You refused to humble yourself. And so God wrote that judgment that we read before as an artist's rendition. Tekel, mene, mene, tekel, parson. God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. And verse 30, that very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain. And Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. Belshazzar's frantic, desperate pride destroyed him. And the tragedy is... And he knew what was going on. I heard a story earlier this week. It's one of those stories that kind of really sits with you. It's so chilling that it sits with you. Um, it's about a guy uh, who kind of hung around. We'll call him Tony for a name. Uh, hung around a church. So he'd kind of go once a month. He went enough that people knew him and he felt like he belonged there. But he never really wanted to engage. Didn't want to join a communion group. Didn't want to do Christian Explored to find out about Jesus. And it was just happy to keep it all at arm's length. And then he got very, very sick. Very, very unwell. And started treatment for it and, and so on. After a while, he happened to meet one of the pastors in the street as he, Tony, and his wife were going shopping. And the pastor said, Tony, how, how are you going with all the treatment and everything? Oh, staying positive. Got to stay positive. That's really important to stay positive. And the pastor looked at him and he could see, you know when you see someone who's really unwell and you can see in their face that they're, they're not recovering. And, and, and the pastor looked at Tony's wife and didn't see the positivity, just saw the awful reality in her face. And, and so he said to Tony, you know, Tony, you might 
have to deal with the reality that you might not get better. And, and now might be the time for you to think about what you're going to say to Jesus when you stand before him. And Tony said, got to stay positive. We're just trying to stay positive. We don't want to think about that. We're staying positive. And off he went. Tony was dead in six weeks. And the tragedy is he'd been around church enough. He'd had offers to explore Jesus enough, but he just wouldn't. He wasn't interested. And I know that's a really heavy story. But so easy for us to block out the truth, to pretend that we are invincible, that we'll get as many days as we want in our lives. Our lives will go on as long as we want. And that we'll never have to give an account before God. That's, that's the tragedy of pride. That it doesn't give us joy and life. It only leads to destruction. When Nebuchadnezzar discovered that humility gives joy, Belshazzar discovered that pride brings destruction. And we have a joyful expectation at Norwest that God changes lives and that he has spoken to each of us tonight from his word. And so I want to ask you tonight as we finish which of these two men are you most like Nebuchadnezzar or Belshazzar like if we did get a couple of stools out and got you up to interview on stage and we said look love to hear your story would you say something like Nebuchadnezzar you know what I want, I want to tell you it's, it's my pleasure to tell you about what God has done in my life he brought me low so that I stopped trusting in myself and I trusted in Jesus. Would that be your story? Or are you more like a Belshazzar? You know there's a frantic, desperate pride in your life that you're chasing significance and meaning in all the wrong places. You know it and you hate it, but you don't think you can break it. And you're right, you can't. But God can, because God changes lives. So I want to implore you tonight that if you know you're like a Belshazzar, to say in your heart, Jesus, forgive me and be the king over the mess in this heart. I want to implore you to do that because you don't want to get to the end of your days and hear God say to you, you knew that I am gracious and forgiving. You knew that I sent my son Jesus to rescue you. You heard about it in church. You saw it in your friends and your wife and her changed life. You, you knew all this, but you suppressed it. You silenced it. You really don't want to get to the end of your days and hear God say that. Pride before God leads to destruction. Humility before God gives us joy so which one are you tonight let's pray together and as we uh, come before our God in prayer we hear these words that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians 5 and 6 he wrote we implore you on Christ's behalf be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. As God's co-workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says, 
In the time of my favor, I heard you. In the day of salvation, I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. Lord God, you are a good and gracious king. And we are full of joy when we humble ourselves before you. There is nothing better for us than to acknowledge you and sit under your gracious and kind rule. And so we ask for each one of us here tonight that none of us would receive your grace in vain, but would always humble ourselves before you, trust in you, and receive joy and life from Jesus. Will you do the work that you need to do in each of our lives for that to be true? We ask in Jesus' beautiful name. Amen.